Dear friends, we're already in the holiest week of the church year, Holy Week. Today we enter into the holiest three days of the year. Beginning at sundown today, we enter into what's called the Triduum. We enter into the Paschal or Passover mystery. God's plan of salvation unfolds before our very eyes. It's a mystery of God's deepest love and commitment to people that don't deserve it, namely you and I and all humanity. For all humanity created by God rebelled against God and, of course, deserved death and hell. But then God came. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death. Over the course of the next several days, we're given a chance to walk with our Lord Jesus Christ in his passion, as we are every year, to experience in a small way his betrayal, his suffering, his pain, and his being stretched as much as a human being possibly could be stretched to the breaking point. We hear the record of those terrible but beautiful moments as he says yes to the Father, as he says yes to you and to me, taking our place all in God's plan. In the course of this time, we see Jesus' three things, which is going to be not for this sermon, but for the sermon of the next three days, including this one beginning. We see Jesus the servant. We see Jesus the paschal lamb. We see Jesus the victor. Each of those identities is profound And each is demonstrated sacramentally. What I mean to say is, from Monday, Thursday to Easter Sunday, each of those identities is acted out liturgically in this time of the Holy Holy Week. Jesus the servant, the paschal lamb, and Jesus the victor are visible in all three days, however. Each day's readings contains all three. But just like in a theatrical show, the spotlight lights up a certain actor on the stage while the others are present. So it is during this time that the spotlight shifts from one identity of Christ to the other. And so tonight, the spotlight looks at Jesus, the servant. Jesus, the slave. Tomorrow, we'll see Jesus the Lamb. And of course, finally on Easter, we'll see Jesus, the victor. But all three are necessary. Look at Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 14, which David read for us tonight. And if you're not familiar with the context of what's going on there, the Hebrews, God's chosen people, the sons of Abraham, have been slaves for some 400 years. Joseph, the son of Jacob, called Israel, came with Joseph to Egypt because of a famine where they prospered. In fact, they prospered so much that Pharaoh grew envious of them and made them his slaves. 
God raised up Moses and his brother Aaron to be leaders and to free and save the Hebrews from the Egyptians. But Pharaoh was stubborn and hard-hearted, and so through nine plagues, he resisted God's will to let God's people go until the tenth plague. The tenth plague was more deadly than the rest, where God would send his angel of death. Look at Exodus chapter 12, verse 12 in our first reading. For, says the Lord, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. By the killing and consuming of a lamb, however, And signing the doorposts with that lamb's blood, God's covenant people would be saved. They'd be exempted from the killing. That blood was their sign and their seal of God's protection. And so 1,500 years before our Lord Jesus was born, God was foreshadowing salvation and the Lord's Supper in the Passover, in this feast. God's people continued to need to be saved again and again, even after they were saved from Pharaoh. The lamb at the Passover did not choose to be sacrificed, however. The animals brought to the temple in the Old Testament didn't choose to be sacrificed. Their families bringing them in atonement for their sins chose for them to die in accordance with God's command. And as gruesome as it was, and it was, God had a purpose in it. He wanted to remind his people year after year that he was their savior and that he had made provision for their sins and for their freedom and that their rescue, their salvation was not cheap. While focus, today we focus, rather we'll focus more on Jesus the Passover lamb tomorrow. But tonight we focus on Jesus, the servant, Jesus, the slave. We don't like the term slave today. It's harsh, just as slavery is. And yet there's more slaves today than there ever have been in the world. As a historian, I've noticed that in many places, slave has been replaced with enslaved person. Have you seen that? They try to remind us that slaves have a humanity beyond their captivity. Bible translators often translate slave servant in a vari- for a variety of reasons, some of which is that their slavery doesn't equate to the chattel slavery that most of us think about. But for God's people in the Old Testament, slavery could be chosen, an odd thing to think about, not as a dehumanizing institution, but as an economical arrangement, more like a serf and his lord than as a slave and his master, as we think of it. But no matter how you slice it, a slave is an inferior. A slave is someone below you. As theologian Hans Borsma wrote in his article, published just a couple days ago, entitled Silencing the Word, this is nothing sweet. This is nothing gentle. Silent listening is for slaves. When a Hebrew slave committed himself for a lifetime service to his master, the two performed a gruesome ritual. 
The master would bring his slave to the door and take a sharp awl and would drive it through the slave's ear into the doorpost. Some people think the earlobe, other scholars think up here. We're not sure. I suppose the ritual said two things, Mr. Borma continues. Number one, you will always belong to this house. You're pinned to this house. Which, mind you, went both ways, for the house was committed to you, too. And number two, your ear will always be open to what I say. You will listen while I do the talking. Jesus' words and actions and silence and inaction come into focus in these next three days. Count the times that Jesus refrains from speaking in the Passion Gospels. How often is he asked direct questions and rather than blurting out answers, he's quiet. He's quiet. Like a lamb before his shearer. In John 13, verse 3, tonight's gospel, it's startling to us, but it's not shocking because it's familiar. It's really hard for us to grasp in an egalitarian society what Jesus was doing on the night of the Last Supper. Look at the gospel quickly with me. Chapter 13, verses 3 through 5. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and they had come from God and was going back to God, verse 4, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garment and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Why is that startling? Well, it's traditionally the job of a slave to be silent to do the master's will. It's traditionally the job of a slave to kneel at the master's feet. A rabbi or a teacher's job was to sit while his students knelt or sat at his feet and listened silently. And yet Jesus assumes that position. Perhaps if you went to college, imagine if your professor came up to you at your desk and sat at your feet, ready to listen to you. What would you do? Wouldn't that be kind of awkward? What if your boss at work did that, came and sat or knelt at your feet and said, speak? Or imagine if a judge stripped off his black robe from the bench and came down and knelt at the feet of a convict and asked how he could help him, would you not be shocked? That's the kind of shock that the disciples had when Jesus knelt at their feet. Scholar Christopher Thomas writes, while there are several peer-to-peer -peer instances of great love, there's no record of a superior washing an inferior's feet in all Jewish and Greco-Roman sources from the ancient world aside from this. None. Through all, of ancient, through all of antiquity, through all the literature. There's some examples of peers doing it out of great love to others that are their equal, but nothing 
of a superior going to his inferior to wash his feet. No wonder Peter objects so vehemently in verse 8. You shall never wash my feet, he says. But in his determination to do what is right and proper, Peter almost misses out. You see, as St. Ambrose of Milan writes in the 330s, Peter did not notice the mystery, and so he refused the ministry of God. He did not notice the mystery, and so he refused the ministry of God. Almost. The very thing that Peter objects to, that his teacher Jesus would humble himself and wash his feet, is the very thing that St. Peter needs. Peter is a master, but he's crippled. He can do nothing for himself spiritually. He's the slave, notice, but Jesus puts him in the place of being the master. And Peter proves how helpless he is just later, this very night, when he denies Jesus three times. He's useless spiritually. You're useless spiritually without Jesus. I am useless spiritually without Jesus. Do you understand that, friends? You have nothing to bring, nothing. But Jesus is patient and firm with Peter. Look at the second half of verse 8, again, in tonight's gospel. What does our Lord say? If I do not wash you, you shall have no share with me. Peter acquiesces to Jesus' firmness. But Peter must let go of his pride and his sense of propriety. As St. Ambrose writes, again, Peter must embrace the mystery to permit the ministry. He must let go of his understanding of what God should, quote-unquote, do for him. And let God do what God wants to do for him and through him. And this menial task of washing his feet is a sacramental sign of something much more than just a foot washing. Remember, this is not the first time that St. Peter has objected to Jesus' plans. Should I remind you of Mark chapter 8, verse 31? And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days to rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So Jesus here chooses to be the suffering servant, to be the slave to Peter, the slave that Peter needs, the servant that Peter doesn't want but must have. And in verse 8, Jesus says, if, you do, if I do not wash you, you will have no share with me. You see, it's Jesus Christ's washing of us as well as the disciples, that gives us a share in his kingdom, isn't it? Baptism is not something you do to yourself. You don't say to yourself, I'm going to go baptize myself today. 
It's something that's done to you. Something that was done to you. Something that will be done to you. It's Jesus washing us in his name. We're helpless to choose him. He chooses us. And the good news is he's chosen you, dear friends. Baptism grants us that eternal share with God and his kingdom. And while there's one baptism, we're to live a baptized life, a life of repentance, a life of new life and obedience. So it's supremely ironic here. I hope you understand that, how Jesus allows that true humility, rather, that Jesus allows himself to be our slave and asks us to have true humility, to embrace that mystery that he wanted to die for you, that he wanted to be your slave, that he wanted to take the, the sin that you have on the cross, that he wanted to take your place as a slave of Satan, because that's what you were before you were baptized, a slave of Satan. The Bible talks about this, the kingdom of darkness. Part of living a baptized life, however, is allowing Jesus' life-giving water to wash over us again and again to get in the crevices and all the stinky places in your life. Again and again and again. Like your stinky feet. Like the toe jam that some of you might have tonight. It's okay. He knows that. Let him wash you. What sin is clinging to you? What's your spiritual toe jam? Jesus has paid for it. Let him work in you. Let him wash you. Do you have an attitude or a habit this Lent that's been revealed to you as a son or a daughter of God that it's not worthy of you being a son or daughter of God, frankly? Do you have that? Has that happened to you? Confess it. Come in confidence before him. Let him get rid of that dirty and unpleasant thing and keep working on it with him washing you. The mystery of Christ's servanthood is not mysterious. That's to say, he's revealed his intent. He's here to rescue you, to wash you, to make you presentable. But the depth of his love is mysterious. Why me, Lord? Why would you do that for me? Why do you want to wash me? John Stott writes, the greatest single secret of spiritual development lies in its personal, humble believing and obedient response to the word of God. It's the way of Christ. He tells us, as he has loved us, so we are to love one another. As he's washed our feet, so are we to wash one another's feet. And that's an extremely difficult thing to do, to allow others to be your servant. I dare say, in some ways, that's harder than serving others. But Jesus has it be that way. True humility is remembering that Jesus washed the feet of not just Peter, but Judas. Did you catch that? Jesus knows that Judas is the one that's betrayed him in tonight's gospel. Judas is still there when Jesus washes the feet. And he washes Judas's feet, who's about to kiss him in the Garden of Gethsemane and send him to the cross. What extreme humility is that? It's an impossible example to follow 
without his life-giving spirit. But he gives us that spirit. In his commentary, St. Augustine reminds us that Jesus washes the disciples' feet, and as he does so, he makes them beautiful. Do you know he's made you beautiful? Do you know he's made you useful? Do you know he's made you part of a kingdom of God, a share of his kingdom? When Jesus washes our feet, we fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah 52, verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And so Jesus, the servant, the slave, becomes Jesus the lamb tomorrow and Jesus the victor on Easter for your God reigns. Dear friends, do not refuse the ministry of God because you fail to embrace the mystery of God's love. Take that with you tonight. Ponder the rest of Holy Week. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Mm. Mm.